and registration, please. Ma'am, you know why I pulled you over? I have a theory. Kids are jumping up and down. They should be sitting wearing their seatbelts. I yelled at them. They never listen to me. It's very frustrating. We're going to have to find a way to control them. After all, that's your job. Though he'd been a policeman for six years, Officer Hayes had never found himself in a truly dangerous situation. Then again, he had never before told a woman how to raise her children. You saying I'm a bad mother? Ma'am, you need to get back in your car, please. I have no help. My husband's always away on business. I'm gonna have to ask you to step back now. My babysitter joined the witness relocation program. I haven't slept through the night in six years. And for you to stand there and judge me. Okay. I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm just going to let you off. Don't worry. I accept your apology. Now, did that sound like your trip to church today? <laughs> anybody? Anybody want to give a word of testimony? Was that the way it was? Parents, grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles, uh, we've all been there, haven't we? It's easy to get stuck as a parent, struggling as a parent. We're in this Millis series called Stuck, where we have talked about being stuck with difficult people, being stuck in our marriages, and today, being stuck as parents. Let me give you a little disclaimer, however. Again, as we talked about last week, uh, what we, as we talk about relationships and marriage, that's just not for people that are married. There's great truth. There's great truth to be had for all of us today. If we're an aunt, we're an uncle, we're a grandparent, even if we're a teenager. I've been so encouraged since coming here to First Church at our teens. Our teens, who many of them are high school teens, come on Wednesday nights, and our leaders in our uh, middle school program. They come and they are imparting their faith to the next generation. That's the primary role of a parent. They are doing those kind of things with the next generation. Those kids, there's young people that serve in our kids zone program that's going on right now in another part of a building. We have Students that are serving in places like that. Young people that are serving in young life and ministries like that, even whether it's their peers or whether it's kids that are younger, they understand their role as being an example. And so as we think today about parenting, don't just limit it to parenting, the truth that we find in God's Word about what to do and not, what not to do, but also apply it to your life, whether you, again, you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you're an aunt, you're an uncle. All of us, we look at these kids that were lined up here today that received a Bible for the first time, or we saw the kids' choir that sang earlier. Our role as a part of this church, part of it is to help come alongside parents, to share with them our faith as they are watching us. Because those young people, those little kids, are watching all of us. So this is a message for every single one of us today. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to Genesis, the 25th chapter. Stick a finger in the 25th chapter, turn over a couple of pages, and we'll also be looking at the 27th chapter. As you're turning there, I think the reality is, as you're turning there, think about this reality. 
We have an influence on young people. My uh, two boys, my oldest son, Caleb, uh, has talked to us at different times about, about what he wants to do when he gets older. He said that uh, he's thought about being a pastor. And in fact, where we lived in Middletown, he had a piece of land that every time we drove by this, this track of land, 64 acres, he would say, that's where I'm going to build my church. Uh, and he would, then we talked to he on this one occasion we were talking about that, uh, he said to his mother, and mom, you're going to be my worship leader in my church. And I asked him, well, Caleb, what do I get to do in your church? And he said, well, I might be able to find a place for you as janitor. Uh, so, but hopefully, even though, even if it means me vacuuming and you know, pushing a broom in his church, hopefully I've been a little bit of a part of an influence on him to even at his age to think about it, even consider. And it doesn't really matter if he becomes a pastor or not. We want him to do what the Lord wants him to do. But to even think about that, the realization that that's because of the influence as a parent uh, that I have. And I would hope that all of us, no matter who we are, how old we are, whether we're parents or not, understand the influence that we have. And we don't want to get stuck as we are influencing this next generation. Some of the most important, vital people in kids' lives that have an influence on them are not their peers. It's not, it's not Hollywood. It's not television. We must be the most influential people in their lives. We must work to be that and to show them and model great positive influence in their lives. Well, we're going to look at an example in Scripture of a family that was stuck. Definitely. Actually, we're going to look at some things about what not to do as parents or people that are influencing young people. And then also we'll end up with a great positive example that we see in Scripture of what we need to do, uh, the reverse. Let me give you a little background as you're, if you turn to chapter 25 uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. The story, the main players, dad in this story, as we think about the parents, dad is Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham who... Uh, we, uh, you know, probably have heard of, uh, of him. The great patriarch Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac was 60 years old when he had his first, uh, his first children. His wife's name was Rebecca. She had struggled getting pregnant. She finally gets pregnant. And actually, she's pregnant with twins. And as she's pregnant with twins, she's, she, they're wrestling around in her wombs, the Scripture says. And some of you ladies, you understand what that's like. She would, they were wrestling around the room, she, womb, and she goes to God, God, what's going on with these children of mine? Asking God the question. Some of us parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, we've asked those kind of questions about the children that we influence. God, what is going on with these young people? She asks that question even before they're born. God answers her in verse 23 of chapter 25. Here's what's going on, God says. You have a war going on. There's two nations in your womb, God tells her. One of those nations will be stronger. God's telling her about her future, these two children. One of these, uh, uh, will, the father of two nations are in your womb. One of those nations will be stronger than the other, God tells her. The older, he says, will serve the younger, which would have been totally, uh, totally different than what normally happened in their culture. And so from the, even in the womb, we see a struggle between these two boys, between these twin boys. We know those twin boys as Esau and Jacob. Let's look at the story in verse 25. The birth finally comes. 
The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. And so they come out fighting. They're born fighting, the younger grabbing for the older's heel as he comes out. And so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. From this point on, fighting coming out through the rest of their lives, we see them struggling with one another. Very, two very different children. In verse 27, they're described. Esau, Scripture describes, was a great hunter. Scripture describes him as a man who enjoyed the open country. Jacob, on the other hand, was drawn, Scripture tells us, to the tents, which probably meant he was content to be a shepherd, uh, tending the sheep, so to speak. And so to kind of summarize that, you've got uh, Jacob, or you've got Esau on the one hand, who was the hunter, uh, you know, getting the, bringing down the big buck, ESPN watching kind of guy. And then you had Jacob, on the other hand, who was more into crocheting and macrame and watching the, uh, what's that, that channel, the Home and Garden Network. You know, he was more into to those kind of things. So they were very different. And that difference uh, kind of played into the struggle that they had as, as children, also the struggle that the parents had in their relationship and in the relationship that they had with these kids. Even though Scripture tells us that Esau was born first, he should have gotten the blessing of the father, he should, have, he should have been the one to carry on the family name, all those things, he decided that he was going to sell his birthright. We'll learn about that a little later. And so he throws away basically his spiritual heritage, his spiritual uh, birthright. And so God really knew what he was doing when he said that Jacob would be the one that would be really the more influential, the one, that, the more powerful, the younger, or the younger would actually be served by the older one. Jacob is the descendant, or Jesus Christ is a descendant of Jacob. God knew what he was doing when he said that Jacob would be the one that would really carry on the family name. And so with that background in mind, understanding who Isaac, dad, Jacob, mom, Esau, Jacob, or I'm sorry, Isaac, <laughs> Isaac, dad, Rebecca, mom, Esau and Jacob as the twin boys. We've got the background. Now let's look at the story to find out what are the things that we need to avoid. What do we need to do in order to be a gen raise up this next generation? Look at verse 27. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, as we said, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. And look at verse 28. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, dad, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And so dad picks out his favorite son. It's Esau. And his stomach determines who his favorite's going to be. What a great reason uh, to pick out a favorite son. Because he was the guy that could go out and kill the game and bring the game in so that dad could have the great meal. Mom, on the other hand, said that Jacob was her favorite. And so what we see from this story is favoritism. Blatant favoritism, not favoritism that was cloaked, not favoritism that was behind the scenes or between the lines. This is open, blatant favoritism where one child was openly preferred over the other and they, everybody knew whose favorite who was. And that favoritism fueled conflict that would follow these boys the rest of their lives. We know as parents that 
kids very quickly pick up on those kind of things and learn how to kind of play the system. And the boys had learned how to play the system. And so as we think about parenting, as we think about that as a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, whoever we are, we think about even that young person who's investing in D groups and you've got a group that you're responsible for, you cannot play favorites. We see Isaac and Rebecca playing favorites. Don't play favorites uh, with the kids. So here is Isaac who enjoyed Esau. Esau is, Esau is the man's man, the, the hunter kind of guy. And I'm sure, and it could be like sometimes we as dads might struggle. We dads might struggle with the kid uh, to play favorites because there's the one kid that's the more athletic. And so we are kind of living out our childhood through uh, a second time through this child who's the, who's the good ball player. Or, or maybe we, didn't, we weren't good at those kind of things. And so the childhood that we never had were living out vicariously through this, through this child at the expense of the other. We're playing favorites. Or maybe mom. You might lean toward favoring that child that has, a, has trouble cutting the apron strings. That child that, that depends on you a little more. That child that needs a little more nurture from you. And that child needs your protection, needs your nurture. And so you lean toward that child instead of the other child that really acts like he doesn't need you. He really acts like he, he uh, uh, doesn't need your help in life. And so all of us at times could struggle with playing favorites. We need to be careful. So Jacob and Esau living in the same home, but two very different children. And that contributed to their parents playing favorites with them. Our kids are very different. Uh, I don't know here at First Church, but we in Middletown used to do Operation Christmas Child, which is Franklin Graham's organization, Samaritan's Purse. They would take shoeboxes that you would prepare, shoeboxes uh, that you would put toys and little games and little treats and things, and you would wrap them up. And then you would uh, send them in, and they would take those shoeboxes and send them to places all over our world where children, maybe it's a war-torn area, maybe it's a place where famine's going on, and it gives those children all over the world a, a chance to have Christmas uh, that they wouldn't normally have. And so we did that. And so every year we would take two shoeboxes, Caleb would have one, Jake would have one, and we would go out shopping. We'd buy little trinkets, we'd go to the dollar store, we'd go to Walmart, we'd get little candy and little, little toys and whatnot, and we'd sit down at the table and each of the boys would have their shoebox, and, and then it was time to put their stuff in their shoebox. And Jacob, our younger son, would grab his stuff and kind of shove it in the box and close the lid and, okay, here you go, now what? You know, he's off to the next thing. Caleb, on the other hand, takes all of his little items and he color codes them, he alphabetizes them, he organizes them very systematically within the box. You know, as a parent, we might gravitate. Chris and I are very different and their boy, our boys are very different. We might gravitate to one or the other, but we cannot play favorites. My grandmother, and if my sister is watching via the internet later on this week, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Michelle, I, uh, that... My grandmother was like this, but we both knew how my grandma was. She's gone on to be with the Lord, but my grandma played favorites. My grandma, if you've ever played Uno, that little card game, uh, well, she thought the fun part of Uno, my grandmother, was putting, playing draw fours and wild cards and all that. And so she, no lie, we, the three of us, would be sitting at the table playing. Just the three of us, my sister, myself, and my grandma, she would pass me cards under the table. 
my little uh, Christian sanctified church of God from way back when grandma, she's passing me cards under the table. She, she would invite me over to her house. I'd spend the night. She, she'd put, she'd give me money and you know sometimes she didn't give my sister money. She did all these, those kind of things. And you know, kids being kids and me having the little ornery evil streak that I sometimes has as a kid, you know, uh, would just mess with my sister, you know, I'm, I'm grandma's favorite, you know, those kind of things. Well, kids understand that. It affects kids. It affects their self-esteem. It affects them later in life when we play favorites. It causes unhealthy competition. That's what we saw between Esau and Jacob. It can cause our children, or our grandchildren, or even as aunts and uncles and all that, it can, t- it can cause them, those children, to tie performance with love. Because they think, you know what? If I was just like my brother or sister, if I was just more athletic, or if I just got better grades, then they would treat me the same as the other. And so, when children learn to tie performance to love, that even affects their relationship with God. When as adults, we try to tie our performance to God loving us and accepting us. And so it affects our lives, not just as children, but on into adulthood. And we see that in Jacob and Esau. The other thing that area we can play favorites is not just favorites one child over another, but we as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, we must be careful not to play favorites with other things. That our job becomes more important than our children. Our, our, um, that getting that promotion and so we, we can't spend time or can't, can't invest in our kids because that thing or that whatever is more important and we're playing favorites with that. Our kids understand that. We can't play favorites with a new, if we're, we're remarrying, we can't play favorites with a new husband or a new wife, again, at the expense of our kids. We can't play favorites. The other thing, look at this back to our story. Look at verse 29. In verse 29, we have Esau and Jacob getting into it. Esau, he's been out. He's been out, it says, in the open country. And we don't know exactly what that means, but probably he was out hunting. And he comes back from being gone. And, and, and Jacob, as he liked to do, he was in the kitchen. And he'd been cooking some stew up. And Esau comes back. He's famished. And he comes in to, to Jacob and says, Jacob, can you give me some of your stew? Jacob tells him, well, I'll sell you some stew. Man, that sounds like my home. I could just see Caleb selling Jacob, or, or Jacob selling his birthright to his brother Caleb for a couple slices of pizza. Um, and so here is Esau selling his birthright to his younger brother because he's hungry. And so Jacob, you could say that he tricks him, whatever. But we see in, in, that, in those verses that he sells his birthright. And our birthright, we don't have anything really like that in our culture. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, and also in 1 Chronicles 5, Verses 1 and 2, it kind of explains what a birthright was. A birthright basically was uh, the kid that got the birthright would get twice as much land as the other. The kid that got the birthright would, would really be the one that would be given the right to be the, the spiritual patriarch of the family. It would be the one that, that would carry on the family name. It was really a, a, a great spiritual heritage that was being given. And so Esau sells that for a bowl of soup to his brother. And the thing that we don't, never see in this relationship 
between these brothers and between the parents, we never see anybody getting on to Jacob for doing that. You never see a parent getting on to him. They're fighting, they're bickering. All those times that you see that going on, there's no discipline ever in these boys' lives that we ever see. Proverbs 29 verse 15 says this, The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. In other words, one of the things that we don't see in this family that we must have, we must discipline our children. We cannot avoid discipline. So, here they are fighting from birth, but we never see peace in their relationship until the parents are dead and gone. And then we see that relationship working out, uh, working out between those boys, but it's only later, with no help from the parents. We see even at times the parents encouraging deceit of the sibling and deceit of the other parent. A very unhealthy situation. Basically, the boys are kind of left to raise themselves. And that lack of discipline compounds an already difficult family dynamic. There are things that sometimes compound our family dynamics that get us stuck, not being willing to discipline our children. Things like divorce. We don't want to be the parent. We don't want to be the bad parent. And so instead of being the bad parent we feel all the time, then we just kind of give in. Because, because it's like when they're, all, they're at our house, we're, we're always the one getting on to them. That our, our, our ex-wife, ex-husband, you know, it's always playtime. It's the Disney World dad kind of syndrome. And we don't want to be the bad parent all the time. So instead we give up on the discipline and we give in. Or maybe it's an illness of that child or an illness of someone close to them or a death in the family. And so we feel like we have to cut the kids slack, the children slack, and so we don't discipline like we should. Or maybe our hectic work together. Maybe we're like that mother on that little video who hasn't had a good night's sleep in six years. And so instead of making the kids buckle in, we just say, oh, well, forget it. We're so tired. It's always easier to say yes to the kids than to say no to the kids. And so, well, that can happen as a grandparent as well, can't it? That we're the one that always says yes. And the parents have to, you know, deprogram the kids when they get home because there's been no discipline. We cannot avoid discipline. Our, kid, our kids don't need more friends in their lives from us. They need parents, not friends, from us. And so, irregardless of the situation that would tempt us to avoid discipline, without discipline, Scripture says, our kids get stuck. The next thing, as we look back at the story, as we see another potential for us getting stuck is the reality that the parents weren't on the same page. And so we must parent from the same page. We see the boys from infants, and there are some serious issues between them. We see them, the parents playing favorites. We see them, no record of discipline with the boys. And as we look at then chapter 27, we see some more of the story. And we see Isaac, who is the dad, again, he thinks he's about to die. Actually, it's kind of funny, but he lives 43 more years. He was, you ever, anybody watch Fred Sanford, Sanford and Son? Oh, this is the big one. You know, where we're, he always thought he was about to have a heart attack. And, uh, well, that's Isaac. You know, this is you know, the big one. You know, and he's, 
uh, thinking that's what's going to happen. He li- lives 43 more years, but he brings his, his favorite in, and he says, Esau, I'm about to die. Um, and I want you to go out and fix my favorite meal. And when you go out and you kill whatever wild animal and you fix my favorite meal, bring it to me, and then I'm going to bless you. This is the day that Esau has waited his entire life for, for the personal spiritual blessing of his father. And so he goes out, runs out. Interestingly enough, his mom, Esau's mom, overhears the conversation, gets Jacob and says, Jacob, your dad's about to bless your brother. Here's the plan. I'm going to dress you up like your brother. I'm going to fix your dad his favorite meal. I'm going to put some some skins on your arms and on your neck so if your blind dad happens to touch your skin, he'll still think it's your brother Esau. And let's trick your dad into giving you that blessing. And so she talks, mom talks the son into deceiving the brother and the father, and she goes in, or they go in, they deceive dad, dad gives that blessing to Esau. One of the things that was going on there is the, just the obvious reality that those two were not on the same page. Those parents were not parenting from the same page, had two totally different views on parenting. And that can happen. I think it probably with, with parents, if you're like us, there's times that you have a little closed-door session. And you talk about that situation in the family or whatever it is. But when that bedroom door opens up and you approach the children, there needs to be a united front. Even if the, in the bedroom during the discussion time, you were on totally polar opposite, opposites, when you go out to face the enemy, I mean children... You have to have a united front. Kids know how to work us. They know how to work one of us against the other. We must parent from the same page. Otherwise, we're going to have a home that's filled with tension, filled with issues. Some of us that, some of you that have struggled with divorce, you really understand the difficulty of parenting from the same page. Because you, you're in separate homes and it's, you probably have that feeling of, you know, they're, you know, they're making parenting decisions I don't have any power over. And you have that temptation with the kids to talk about that other parent, to undermine that other parent's authority. That's the temptation. Let me encourage you, even though it feels good to do that, that doesn't help your children. Parent from the same page as much as you can. I understand the, the unique difficulty when you're divorced. But please do the best you can for your kids' sake. And to choose your battles wisely and do the best that you can not to undermine those children. I would just say to you, even in that situation where you think that the kids are getting messed up and maybe as a parent or a grandparent or whoever, you look at this kid and you think, oh, it's kind of hopeless. I just need to give up. Let me encourage you from this passage that even though they were terrible parents, really, and made all kinds of errors, that Jacob still turned out okay in the end. And God still used him in a powerful way, so just be encouraged. The next thing that I would say to you, as we, another piece of advice to avoid getting stuck, is that we need to lead by example. Lead our family by example. We go back to that scene where Rebecca is talking to Jacob. Hey, let's deceive your father. Hey, let me help you get, the, get that blessing. And what we see in that scene is a parent that's being a horrible example to her child. Let's deceive your dad. 
On the other hand, dad, who they knew, they were a family, they knew what God had said to them, that the younger son is going to be the master of the older, that it's the younger son that's going to, that God was going to bless and God was going to make into a great nation. It's the younger one. Esau goes uh, in exact opposition to God's expressed will when in chapter 27, verse 28 and 29, when he is blessing what he thinks is Esau, listen to what he says. May God give you, he thinks he's blessing Esau. May God give you of heaven's dew and earth's riches, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and people be bowed down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. He was giving a blessing that was in direct contrast to God's expressed will. A horrible example to his children. Both parents, horrible examples to their children. Chew on this a little bit, this thought. Good parenting is as much about being the right person as it is shaping the right people. We must understand our vital role of making a commitment and make a commitment to be the examples that we need to be in front of our boys. There was a time when uh, uh, we were home and we have a little dog named Pretzel. Pretzel is the goofiest. Uh, his, bro- his, his mom and dad were first cousins, I think. He had just the gene pools a little thin when I got to Pretzel. Um, didn't have a lot of brain cells firing. And I was trying to get Pretzel to go out the back door. And I'm all, I, you know, I like to mess with a dog because he's kind of fun to mess with. And so I was, uh, the, the boy, we're all home, and, and the dog's not wanting to come. So I start saying, Pretzel, there's a squirrel in the backyard. There's a squirrel, squirrel, because he kind of knows that, that uh, you know, when you kind of get excited like that. And so he gets all excited, and I open the door, and he runs out the door. My youngest son says to me, Dad, you just told, you know, is there a squirrel out in the backyard? Well, No. Well, isn't that kind of like lying? <laughs> I guess technically, even though it is an animal, um, yes, you are correct. Our kids are watching us. Even in those times when we're just, you know, we can't let our guard down. We must understand that our kids are watching us all the time. We must lead by example. And whether that's a, we're an aunt or an uncle or a young person working in D groups or whether we're a parent, whoever we are, grandparents, we must lead by example. We must show these kids the passion of our walk. We must live in front of them a lifestyle of faith. We must make decisions of continual growth in our relationship with the Lord that they can see and they can see modeled in us. We need to have positive, there needs to be a positive example of of the way that we treat the opposite sex, positive examples of the way that we drive in the car, positive examples of the way that we handle money and the way that we treat people. All of those things, young people, the next generation is watching us. They are learning from us. We must lead by example. Interestingly, as we think about Jacob, if you think that, well, it doesn't really matter, let me give you an example of yes, that it does. As you look at Jacob's life, has anybody heard the story of the coat of many colors? Do you know who the dad was in that story? Who the dad was that was playing favorites with his kids? It was Jacob. Do you know who the dad was who sent his brother to spy on his other brothers because he was the favorite and all the other kids knew about it? That again is the same family. 
Jacob learned some of these horrible parenting uh, things from his own family. This morning we've talked about this family that was stuck. And I just want to leave you with a very positive example of how to get unstuck. And we look at the example in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Very simply, Hannah had no children. And she had been praying that God would bless her, desperately bless her with a child. God does that. And we see that when he does that in 1 Samuel 1, verses 27 and 28, this is what she says back to God. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And so what we see is a positive example of this mother giving her children, her child, back to God. Physically giving her child back to God. Now for us in our generation, please don't give me your children. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, I got two and I'm not a perfect parent and that's about all I can handle, you know, when I throw the dog in. And the two guinea pigs and the, yeah. So that's about all I can handle. So you need to do it on your own. Uh, well, we want to help you, but uh, you're kind of on your own. But how can you give your children back to him in our generation? We see that she sacrificed to give her children back. And so as we model that, we must also be willing to sacrifice for our children, making them a priority. And so that may, what does that mean for you? to sacrifice so that you can pass your faith along to this next generation, so that passing your faith along as you sacrifice, it becomes priority. Your walk with Christ becomes a priority because they're watching you, because you're parenting them. Your involvement in church, the way that you give of your life and give of your resources and the things that they're watching of you, that you are with utter abandonment serving God because the reality is the good things that we do in excess, our children more often than not, we'll do in moderation. And the bad that we do in moderation, more often than not, our children will do in excess. The quickest way for us to raise children that walk away from the Lord is not for us to go hang out in the bars and for us to wholesale abandon our relationship with Christ. The quickest way that we can raise a generation that will abandon God is for us to lead mediocre Christian, a Christian walk. You want to raise a child that walks away from Christ? Then just be lukewarm in your relationship with him yourself. Our children need us to sacrifice as they see us giving them back to God. So this morning, let's have a Samuel experience as we give the next generation back to him. I was 16 years old when I felt God calling me to full-time ministry. I went in and told my dad, my parents, about that decision. My dad really struggled with that. My dad's an insurance salesman, very successful. He had always dreamed that I would take over his business. And so that kind of shattered his idea for me. And I remember him saying to me, Well, David, I still think that you should go to college and study and get your business, your computer science degree, whatever, you know, the things I was thinking about at the time, because you need something to fall back on in case ministry doesn't work out for you. And he was, that was the best at that time 
advice that he could give me. You need to make sure that you have something to fall back on in case ministry doesn't work out. He was not at that point at a position that he could totally give me to the Lord. He was still, you know, I got to protect him. I got to I got to help him. I got I don't know if we can totally trust God. I don't know if God if we can totally try if I can totally trust you with my son this morning. And and the rest of the story cuz you'll be asking me later so I didn't tell you the rest of the story. We had a, a pastor friend that came to our home and met with my dad and basically had a little come to Jesus meeting with my dad and helped my dad understand that he could trust God. And if God had called me, that he could trust God, that he was going to take care of me. And my dad didn't have to worry about it. And after that, then my dad, you know, bought in, gave me back to the Lord in that, in that way and has been tremendously supportive of me ever since. What do you need to do to give your children, your grandchildren, your niece, your nephew, whoever it is, to give them back to the Lord? We provided for you in your worship folder as you came in a little card. We've been doing that the last few weeks. That just helps you. If our worship team can go ahead and come back up. That helps you to maybe identify some areas that you could just invite God to help you with what's going on. Maybe it's a grandparent, parent, whatever your situation is. If you would like us as a staff to come alongside you and pray for specific needs that you have, Again, we've been praying for those needs. So you could use, there's a mailbox as you walk out today. You could drop that card in that mailbox. Maybe you today would like to say, I'd like to come to Christ and have a relationship with a heavenly father that I've never had before. You could indicate that on that card. These altars are open. We're going to have a time of worship as we end today. If you'd like to come and pray, you do that. Let's stand this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth that we find in your word that is always applicable to life. Whether we're a parent or not, Father, there is truth to be had. Father, help us to own the reality that we must give back and pass along our faith to this next generation. And it is all of our responsibility to be engaged in that. And so, Father, as we sing, as we worship, we are speaking to you, talking to you about how we can be more effective, how we can give our children, how to give these children back to you, what we need to do or do better so we can get unstuck as we pass our faith along. Thank you, Father. Speak to us now as we respond to you. In Christ's name, amen.